Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 146 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are you? Hanging in there. Earnings season beginning. Yeah. Yeah, on deck. I think uh, Tesla reported last night. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had major banks report already, and over the next couple of weeks, it's going to get busy quick. Very busy. Um, so before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on April 20th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is down 1.57% for the month and down 6.44% for the year. The Dow up 1.4% for the month and down 3.24% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 4.5% for the month and down 12.95% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index down 1.43% for the month and down 11% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States down 1.8% for April and down 7.7% for the year. Three-month T-bill yielding 0.82%, the two-year Treasury yield at 2.62%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.86%. So big news, headlines, current events from the week. Uh, Other than earnings, Matt, it's been kind of quiet. I think the the big topic du jour, so to speak, has been uh, Elon Musk uh, mulling over purchasing Twitter. And it started... Uh, we talked about this in questions with Martin, Matt, Mark, and Matt a couple of weeks ago um, with him taking a 9.2% passive stake in Twitter. And then he was going to join the board and decided not to do that. And he was like, you know what? I'm just going to make a bid for the whole company. Yeah. And what's crazy is uh, I literally can't believe the board is opening themselves up to such a financial liability. It's insane to me. And the guy is playing 3D chess because the rumor is they threw out a poison pill, which just makes it hard for him to accumulate shares. And he's just going to do a tender offer saying to people, hey, I'm willing to buy it at this price. Sell them to me if you want. You don't have to if you don't want to. And it's probably going to be a lot higher than the current trading price. Mm -hmm. And so all he's going to do is circumvent the board. The board looks like a bunch of clowns. (laughs) And uh, it, it just really... I can't believe they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of further go into, you know, that poison pill comment you made, that's, you know, for listeners that don't know, that's been a way for the last several decades that companies can prevent a hostile takeover. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and it comes in various different forms. But in the instance of Twitter, they have given themselves the option to issue shares to current shareholders at a very, very discounted price. That's right. So that dilutes ownership within Twitter. So it makes it harder for Elon or anyone else to take, to control. take the, the major share. Yeah. Right. It's crazy, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of nuts. So I guess we'll see. It's fun to watch it, though. It is. Yeah. It's you know, he's staying he's sta- staying relevant. That's for sure. Any any media attention for him is good. 
good or bad. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's fun to watch it. It is so, fun to watch it. Um, so, yeah, so we'll see, you know, how that plays out here yeah, in yeah. the next couple of weeks. But um, so moving on to tweets, articles and research from the week. The first thing I had was a blog post by Michael Batnick. Uh, and this was back on March 9th. So this is a while ago. OK. And it was titled The Day the Market Bottomed. So um, on March 9th of this year, he says, 13 years ago, the financial world was in freefall. Lehman Brothers, a financial institution that had been around since before the Civil War, declared bankruptcy. And I actually just uh, on, what was it, Sunday or Monday night, watched Margin Call. Have you oh. ever seen that movie? Um, I've yeah. seen bits and pieces. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. Good movie. It's only like an hour and a half. So, yeah, yeah it was good to watch that again. Um Mortgage delinquencies were skyrocketing, peaking at 11%. One in 10 workers was without a job. Things were dire, and the chaos was reflected in the stock market. If investors were told to hang tight, the S&P 500 would return 17% a year for the next 13 years, 700% total. Nobody would have believed it. The sky was dark in 2009, and it seemed like the sun would never shine again, but the darkness always gives way to light because hope is more powerful than despair. People never lose the motivation to provide for their families and to make the future better than the past. Below is a short list of products and services we take for granted today that are proof of our collective drive. None of these things existed when Bear Stearns was being rescued. So before I go into this, can you think of things that are heavily heavily used today that weren't around back then yeah sure try to guess some of these things yeah um well the iphone came out a year beforehand yeah um gps navigation wasn't even a thing at mm -hmm. that point um, um wi-fi availability wasn't where it was today um, I mean, high frequency trading wasn't even a thing. Uh, after hours trading was 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 in its infancy. Um, well, products it, and services we use today. Exchange traded funds were never used at that time. Products and services. I see. I'm thinking in the realm of the markets. Mm -hmm. There's gonna be so many things. There was no Ubers then. Yep, that was that's the first one on the list. There was no DoorDash. That's also on the list. Uh, there was no grocery delivery. Yep. Um, so some other things are Uber topped the list. Uh, streaming. There was no streaming. Instagram. Oh, yeah. There was no Graham. FaceTime or Zoom. I didn't join Facebook until 2009. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> AirPods. One so wireless headphones was not around uh, Venmo or mobile payments was not around uh, CRISPR technology was definitely not around uh, reusable rockets. Definitely not around. Definitely not around <laughs> smart items in the home like ring Alexa. And oh, Nest. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a remote video. No way. iPads. No, was not a thing. Yep. Which is crazy to think about. It's like generations today. It, it's a staple. Up. It's a staple. Yeah, it's a staple. Self-driving cars, we have them, but aren't being used or fully adopted yeah, yet. Yeah, um, yeah, Standing desks, shared office space, work from home, crypto, and podcasts. Yeah. So it's just interesting, you know, to go back and, you know, we've talked about this before, but some of the best innovation 
in this country has come out of dire, not fun, hard, hard times. It forces innovation. Almost. It does. It does. So, um, so he lists all these items and he says, it's easy to lose sight of the light when we all, all we see is darkness and it's easy to overweight today's problems and underweight the worries that are now comfortably in the rear view mirror. I said recently that investors haven't had this much on their plate in a long time. It's just a lot between the tech blow up, commodity spike, inflation, supply chain issues, and the Fed normalizing rates. But is today really more scary than March of 2020? I'm sharing this chart today because it is the anniversary of the GFC low, and it helps remind me and hopefully you that there are always reasons to sell. Always. The point is not to make like make light of the challenges of head but it serves as a reminder of what's on the other side actually it serves as a reminder that there is no other side it's never all good that's really the point there are always reasons to sell and we've i don't know how many times we've used this chart and put it up before but it's the chart of the s p 500 since you know march of 09 and all of the reasons to sell yeah right so you can go back at future or past podcasts and see that to wrap up, he says the way to deal with uncertain times, and that's the only times there ever are, is having a plan. The two questions you need to ask from an investment standpoint is, can I stick with my strategy if the market bottoms today and we're at all-time highs by summer? And can I stick with my strategy if the market falls another 20% and doesn't recover for a few more years? If your answer is yes, you're good. If not, it's time to find a strategy that works for you. Well said. And, you know, going back, it's just the... The, the main crux to the problem back then, and I'll bluntly say it, is the financial solvency of the whole financial global monetary system was in question. So to bluntly say it, that was it. And so that was such a scary time in regards to any event that we've seen since then, and most likely, and I hope I will ever see in my career. And it was only comparable to uh, the, the 30s after the 29 crash. And so the financial system was broken. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there was not money moving. I mean, to the point where you had banks that which just wouldn't loan money to other banks. I mean, think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. I mean, in essence, you, everyone questioned the financial solvency of the entire system. Everyone was on their own. And... Um, you know, the Fed was even reluctant to, to, to help out banks at that point. Right. So with all that being said, you know, definitely, you know, I know that there's always reasons not to invest. But, you know, back then, that was the main reason why things were the way they were. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so sticking on uh, the Ritholz guys here for a second. My next one was a piece by Ben Carlson titled The Best Personal Finance Inflation Hedges. So he says inflation was already a stone's throw from 8% before war broke out involving two countries that account for a large share of energy and agricultural commodities throughout the world. Working in an industry that is obsessed with markets, I find that most of the questions people are now asking about inflation come at it from the perspective of their portfolio. Should I buy commodities? How about tips? Is it too late to buy energy stocks? Have you seen the yields on Series I savings bonds? How do I hedge against inflation? The way I see it is that the time to prepare for inflation is ahead of time, not while it's happening. From 09 to 2020, the U.S. stock market was up more than 13% per year 
over and above the rate of inflation. If you've been an investor for the long term, you were hedging against high inflation before it ever got here. And this is one of my favorite. I love this line because we've talked about this before, is that you're preparing for inflation before it gets here. That's why we invest in the first place. Inflation has been at what? 2% per year, if that, for the past decade before COVID. Mm -hmm. So while we haven't seen inflation or major inflation up until now, we were preparing for that by investing in the markets for the past decade, right? Mm -hmm. So when everyone's saying, you know, what's the best thing to hedge against inflation, you've already been doing it if you've been a part of the markets for the past decade, right? Well put. Um, so he says, regardless of how you're managing your investments to account for higher prices, there are other ways to hedge inflation beyond your portfolio. Here are some ideas for the best personal finance inflation hedges. Get a Costco membership. Are prices rising at Costco just like other grocery stores? Sure, but buying in bulk is a good way to hedge against further price increases should they come. Your Costco membership also comes with slightly lower gas prices, which at the very least pays for your annual membership and then some. Well put. Yep. Big Costco fans. Yep. Yep. Uh, a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. The whole reason to invest in the first place is to improve your standard of living. If you just buried all your money in the backyard, it would eventually lose its value over time. You can think of debt in the opposite way. With debt, your, your liability is what loses value over time, and that's a good thing. This is what makes a mortgage with low interest rates one of the best hedges against inflation on the planet. The median sales price for an existing home in the United States is now around 350000 Again, this was in March, so I think it's higher now. Okay. Um, assuming the down payment of 10% using the average 30-year mortgage rate over the past five years, which was 3.7%, this would give you a monthly payment of roughly $1,450. Probably average rent for a couple bedroom apartment for a family these days. And that's to his next point. Unfortunately, if you don't own a home, you're taking it on the chin. According to apartment list, the year over year growth in rents was almost 18% at the last reading. <laughs> I didn't read the article. <laughs> Uh, next thing is the ability to substitute. Last week, I found myself in one of the happiest places on earth on a Friday afternoon. You know who that is? I mean, Jenna it said Disney. Not Disney. Uh, the Friday afternoon for somebody? Yeah, it'd probably be like uh, the beach or a pool or something. He says the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's a bear market, I understand. Right, right. <laughs> I like to do my channel checks on trips like this, so I ask the owner how inflation is impacting his business. I do the he, same thing. Yeah. He has told me he's seeing higher prices across the board, but the thing that surprised him the most was a new gas surcharge on his ice delivery. He said that they charged him $60 for a $30 delivery of ice. I'm guessing we'll be seeing a lot more of this in the weeks and months ahead. And again, this was back in the beginning of March, and we have seen this. Uber just announced that they're adding a fee of 45 to 55 cents per trip, while Uber Eats deliveries will include a 35 to 45 per, or excuse me, cent surcharge. I know we've all become accustomed to paying for convenience, but with higher prices, some people are going to have to make different choice, choices with how to allocate their budget. Maybe that $20 upcharge for DoorDash isn't worth it anymore. Maybe you go pick up the pizza instead of paying for delivery. Maybe sacrifice one to two nights of going out to eat to make up for higher utility bills. For people on a tight budget, uh, they are going to have to have some trade-offs. Um, next thing is avoiding lifestyle creep. 
So he said, last month I wrote about Chanel raising the price of their handbags from 5200 in 2019 to 8200 today. These bags oh, are... I feel s- bad for the people buying those. Yeah, That's horrible. I know. These bags are signaling items so wealthy people are willing to pay up. Avoiding the siren of lo- uh, luxury goods is a simple way to keep your personal inflation rate from getting out of control. Last but not least, the ability to negotiate higher wages. This option doesn't get talked about enough in personal financial circles, but is likely the best environment for workers ever to ask for a pay raise. Yeah, um, and what's crazy is is sometimes you know employers haven't given raises for years mm-hmm. um, in, in a lot of circumstances. You know, so yeah, absolutely. So there's other ways other than just your managing it from your portfolio to hedge against inflation and i think yeah that's a good article for the everyday person that's looking for tips among this higher inflation good pick mark so good pick uh last but not least really briefly was a tweet by uh willie delwich um and he's a part of the all-star charts team with jc peretz he said uh back on april 13th um, this is from the AAII Individual Investor uh, Sentiment Survey. Bears are up, excuse me, bears are up and bulls plummet to their lowest level since 92. Still just one week this year when bulls were greater than bears. Individual investors are pretty frustrated with this market. So, um, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen the amount of fear in the market like this before. And I mean, it's even exceeded march of 2020 now at this point so it's shocking yeah yeah and while it, it could definitely get worse you know um typically it doesn't stay this bearish for that long amongst you know sentiment ac- across you know individual investors so and what's crazy about this too mark is a lot of data would indicate it's the retail investor that has been quote unquote propping up this market mm-hmm. you know i would say a very general term, and there's data that backs up this statement, institutions for the most part are severely underweight equities compared to where they're normally at, Mm -hmm. okay? And it's just interesting, and I made this comment on multiple podcasts. The perception is, you know, you have the smart money which is in institutions, and then what they would say is the retail money is the dumb money. And since COVID hit, it's been the exact opposite right right and again this is you know take it with a grain of salt because this is just asking people what they feel about the markets this isn't asking them how their portfolio is positioned that's right so the question is you only have one of three answers that's it you're either bullish neutral or bearish you have to answer one of three that's it yeah but i like that because the data set is so far back mark it makes it relevant Mm mm-hmm yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of history there. Well, um, I'm going to go next, and great minds think alike. <laughs> I'm seeing that right now. So um, I, I'm sure Jenna got a kick out of this when she looked at our notes, because uh, lo and behold, listeners and viewers, I picked a similar chart. Okay, I'm talking about first investor sentiment. So the first thing I have is. It's a, um, a, a, a tweet by a trader I follow with a Twitter handle, Norseman1, okay? <laughs> I, I follow some really good guys and gals, okay? Full of good content. This is a great chart, okay? 
So what this trader did is he overlaid roughly a three-year chart of the S&P with that same investor sentiment survey showing bulls and bears. He just eliminated the neutral side of it, mm -hmm. okay? And it's really neat to look at this chart. And so let's pause for a second. Will you remind our listeners and viewers how they could access this, please? Yeah. So if you go to uh, Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook or LinkedIn uh, at Jessup Wealth Management, they'll be able to see all the show notes. And Jenna will post this for those uh, watching on YouTube. And what you're going to see is, again, visually, that level of bullishness being so low, okay? So moving on, you know, when sentiment gets this low, it tends to be somewhat near a short-term low for the market. Like you insinuated in your comments, Mark, it by no means guarantees it, it, that we're at, you know, the worst and it's going to get better. But it's a positive data point, in my opinion, for stocks in general, okay? Now, after I did my notes, I saw a piece from Bespoke Investment Group. It did not make the show notes, so I'm going to verbalize this. Mm -hmm. Their data set overlays when bullishness goes below 20%. Again, extremely rare. Even during the great financial crisis, it never got below 20%. Take that in. Right. Okay? Right. That the average one-year return for the S&P 500 is over 20%. Okay? It's amazing. And 88% of the time, one year later, the market's positive. Yeah. So true. very, very bullish from a sentiment contrarian standpoint. Anything else you want to add? No. Next item I have for listeners and viewers is data on vacation homes. So before I talk about this piece from Zero Hedge that was posted on April 12th, they are referencing something in this called the Redfin Housing Demand Index. And then it's important that I define that first for our listeners. So this is a newer index um, that is being talked about in the marketplace. And so the Redfin Housing Demand Index is the industry's, quote, first and only measure of housing activity prior to purchase. It's based on thousands of Redfin customers requesting home tours and writing offers in 15 major metro areas. And so that kind of gives you kind of the gist. I'll stop there. And there is a chart that I have in our show notes here that shows demand for va vacation homes is dropping in Whoa. March Yeah, for the second month in a row. And it's not just a drop. It's like it went off a cliff on off a cliff. Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting to me because the sensitivity to real estate is definitely going to be seen first in those second homes. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a luxury. It's not a need. And I think with mortgage rates moving up as quick as they have, you know, another deterrent is the demand. Uh, for uh, these loans, you now have these loan fees for these second homes, which could be another one to 4%, which I talked about earlier, you know, and so ultimately, this is definitely a warning sign for real estate. So it's something I think that the viewers and listeners should keep their ear to the ground on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great chart. It's, I mean, it's falling off a cliff. It looks like 
it peaked in January of 21 or February of 21, somewhere along. You only that see line. this stuff in hindsight, right? Yeah. Right. So it's very, very interesting. And so um, I'll uh, throw out my words of wisdom uh, for our viewers and listeners when it comes to a vacation home. Anytime a client calls me and says, Matt, what do you think about XYZ property or you think I should do this? My standard response is this. If you envision yourself owning this for at least the next decade, price doesn't matter if you can afford it. Mm -hmm. Something you're going to use and enjoy, you do it. If you're looking at that through the lens of an investment quasi, I get to do X, Y, Z, I think you really need to put pen to paper. Mm -hmm. That's what I usually say. Right, exactly. And I think, I think that's yeah. good words of wisdom. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because again, just like when you're, you're buying a primary residence, it's like, okay, you're not just paying the sticker price, okay? And especially if it's not a brand new home, you're going to have to do stuff to the home. Absolutely. Right? Um, and like, let alone a second home, you're not there. You're going to have to pay for a lot of people to keep that thing going when you're not there. Right, exactly. Yeah, I was just, I was with my brother last night and he just bought a home in uh, just north of Columbus. And we got back from being uh, back uh, in upstate New York uh, a couple nights ago and he came home and there was a puddle of water underneath the fridge. Fantastic. Like, okay. And he was already in the process of fixing uh, a part on his dishwasher that didn't get caught in the inspection. And there was a, a, a vent that needed to be replaced. So it's like you're paying more for just the sticker price and then double that when you buy a vacation property, if it's not brand new, right? So yeah. you just have to be prepared for the stuff that you don't necessarily see when you're making that purchase more than just the note payment right okay so my next thing i saw an interesting tweet by walter deemer he's a retired institutional market analyst uh this guy started in the industry in 64 he retired in 2016 he posted this on april 16th okay and the quote was this is from paul samuelson uh the quote is the stock market has forecasted nine of the last five recessions <laughs> that's pretty good pretty accurate yeah i think enough said right there yeah it is yeah and like they he said his snarky remark has an important message for investors many bear markets are not associated with a recession oh and he put underneath it um it's now 13 of the last seven by the way yeah that's great <laughs> <laughs> that's great but that's a good that's a good word of wisdom though for our listeners and viewers mm -hmm. right yeah the market yeah, shoots first and asks questions, questions later. later. Right. We got to remember that. Right. Yeah. And just as a reminder too, the definition of the textbook definition of a recession is two declining or two, two consecutive, consecutive declining quarters, quarters of, of GDP, negative GDP growth. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and we haven't hit that yet. We haven't even hit one yet, but you can see on a chart, if you put it like on a bar chart, we're getting close, but. And hasn't had a, a negative quarter yet. And just like you always say on this podcast, not all recessions are the same. No, they're not. And I think it's getting better, but people still assimilate a recession to what, Mark? 07, 08. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. So if it's some a recession. People, I, I think so. I can make the argument that some people don't even know that we were in a recession in 2020. Amen. That's a good point. I mean, again, it's like people hear recession, they think 07, 08. Mm-hmm. Not, right. not, not, not accurate. No, it's not. Okay. It's not. Over to you, my friend. Um, so the financial planning topic of the week is uh, from a gentleman by the name of James Dahl on the White Coat Investor. 
Uh, and it's about how to super fund a 529 plan. So we talked about 529 plans significantly. Can you pause for a second? Yeah. So um, back in the late 2000s, there was a company that wanted to replicate a hedge fund for the masses, and it was based out of Europe. It was called the Superfund. Oh, yeah. I do remember. You remember this yeah, one? I remember that, yeah. Complete and utter bust. <laughs> but since we're talking about the GFC, right. I saw Superfund, and it just it hit me. I didn't mean to Trig- interrupt Triggered you. a memory? Triggered that memory of the old Superfund. Yeah, different Superfund here. So... Um, James says that many families use 529 plans as a way to save for future education costs due to its tax benefits as funds in a 529 account grow tax deferred and that growth can subsequently be withdrawn tax free if used for qualifying educational expenses. In addition, many states offer a tax deduction for 529 plan contributions, making these accounts even more attractive. And while many families might not have the means to contribute more than the annual gift tax limits of 16000 per individual per recipient in 22, wealthier families have the option of superfunding these accounts beyond this limit without using their gift tax exemption. The superfunding exception allows individuals to fund up to five years worth of 529 contributions to a given beneficiary in a single year, without triggering gift taxes when the contribution is made to the child's 529 plan. For example, a parent could contribute $80,000 into a 529 for their child in 2022 and not have to use any of their gift tax exemption as long as they do not make additional gifts to that child for five years. Given the additional years of potential compounding with tax-free growth potential, superfunding a 529 plan could lead to a larger account balance by the time the student goes to college compared to making smaller annual contributions. At the same time, there are limits on how much someone might want to contribute to a 529 account. For example, because of the limited tax-free uses of funds in a 529, a parent or other contributor might not want to overfund an account beyond what the account's beneficiary is likely to need for college or graduate school expenses. On the other hand, the parent can choose to fund more and plan to change the beneficiary to a sibling or another individual who will have education expenses. And some families might even consider contributing so much into 529 accounts that it funds not only college for their children, but has enough left over to benefit further generations down the line. So I know a lot of this doesn't apply to a lot of people, I don't think, Matt, but, you know, for some people, college planning is extremely important to them and they want to be able to pay for their kids college. And that's just one of their goals. So if they inherit money, maybe from a parent or a grandparent, and one of their top goals is to pay for all of their kids' college with the stepped-up cost basis, they don't have any tax consequences. They could sell that money that's in a taxable brokerage account, for example, and super fund a 529 for their kids. And that's just one example of how I would see this being used. Um, but not everyone's goal is to pay for their kids college. Right. But if it is, you know, this option is out there for you and provides a larger chunk of money that has, you know, a decade or even sometimes two decades to grow, um, you know, at a high rate. Well said. And grandparents can do this too. Yeah. Grandparents can do this too. So, um, again, talked about, you know, 529s, you know, several times here before, but 
Um, this is an option that skirts around that, you know, the gift tax, uh, right? Because obviously there's only a certain amount you can gift without penalty uh, or tax-free, uh, which is 16000 per person in, in 2022. But uh, this is a way around that. So Yeah, I like you yeah. brought this up. Uh, anything else before we leave it off here? Uh, no, uh, you know, we're still at the beginning of, of Q2. We're about to get in the depths of, of earnings season. We're already seeing post earnings volatility, both to the up and downside and specific names. Um, just want to remind people that, you know, have a longer term time horizon in this market. There's going to be volatility in the short term, both ways. Right, right. All right, well, we'll leave it there for the week. And thanks, everyone, for listening to episode number 146. And we will be back with you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.